Hello and welcome back to Talk More Stephen King. The subject of today's discussion is the 1983 movie, which is based on the 1979 book, The Dead Zone. Directed by David Cronenberg, yes, it's that David Cronenberg, it tells the story of an everyman, John Smith, hey, you can't get more ordinary than that, who after an accident gains the ability to see past or future events of people he touches. Never saw COVID come in though, did he? Uh, This (laughs) gift allows Smith to see a potential end to our world unless he acts upon it. For this special film, we have a new voice on our show, Val. Now, for those who don't know Val, check out his amazing Retro Massacre podcast. It's one of my favorite podcasts. I'm always entertained and I always learn a lot. Welcome to the show, Val. Thank you so much for having me, guys. It's uh, wonderful to be here with you. And, uh, and thank you for saying such nice things about my show. I, I'm, I'm blushing here. You can probably see <laughs> on the distant horizon a red glow. Well, a, a, a week ago, I was happily oblivious to a film called The Roly Poly Man. And now <laughs> I feel I must watch it. You do, you do. It's it's hard to find, but yeah, I think you might gonna have to buy it or something or get it off eBay. Or maybe even I don't know, maybe some kind of person you know might put it on Dropbox. I'm just saying. Not me, obviously, but you know, <laughs> someone possibly. Uh but it's it's one of the strangest yet funniest comedies I've seen. Please do check it out. And that Brilliant. was why I did the that podcast episode. I wanted to put it out there. It needs to be wider seen. So where can people find your podcast? Um, I am everywhere at the moment. So uh, Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Podbean, all your major outlets, all your quality Excellent. places. Yeah, Just search for the Retro Podcast Massacre and you'll, you'll find me. Although I should say that I am on the verge of closing down that podcast and starting a whole new one. And because horror is too small a genre to hold me anymore, chaps. I'm moving <laughs> on. Breaking um, out. I am. I am. So I will make my announcement on your show as an exclusive. Uh, the new show will be called The Big Screen Biograph, and it will be less reviews, more just the stories behind the films. But there'll still be a lot of horror in there as well. I want to do people like Peter Cushing and Donald Pleasance and all those chaps. I've got to say, your show on Peter Walker summed up my teenage years. That's how on the nail that show was. I had no idea you were such a degenerate there, Jeff. That's, that's uh, yes, terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm glad. I mean, I, I bloody love Pete Walker, and he's, his reputation is kind of its not high enough. He should be regarded as a treasure of British cinema, and Sheila Keith uh, oh. is uh, just a legend. So, yeah, so I'm glad you enjoyed that. It was a lot of fun to do. So I look forward to your new show, and uh, you have at least one subscriber straight away. That's me. Excellent. Oh, Good. Oh. <laughs> my my oh. audience has doubled and it's been two minutes. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so we're here to discuss the, the dead zone. But before we go into that, a, a general point I want to discuss as a starter. So from the period 76 to 84, the following directors made movies based on the works of Stephen King. It's Brian De Palma, Toby Hooper, Stanley Kubrick, George Romero, David Cronenberg, and John Carpenter. What is it? about Stephen King that attracts people of that calibre? Well, there are there are two answers to that question. The first is the very cynical one, which is that if you put the Stephen King name on any movie, you'll pull in punters. So there's that. Yeah. But the, the not cynical answer is that I think Stephen King has a a great gift for characters. And it's it's always the characters that pull me into his stories. And I think that is probably the case for some of the directors on that list. Cronenberg definitely, he stated that. 
he he liked those characters. He liked. He said they're very different from the characters he writes, and that was why he wanted to do this film. Certainly, the case with Brian De Palma as well, whose Carrie is just amazing, and Sissy Spacek gives such an amazing performance. Yeah. Um, Stanley Kubrick, I don't really know. <laughs> I attached him to The Shining because you know he he obviously wanted to make that a movie of that book, but that's not what he ended up doing. So, um, but that's a whole other kind of worms. <laughs> we did a show on it, yeah, and it was uh, it was not kind to Mr. Kubrick at all. Well, it's interesting uh, because Cronenberg, I, I don't know if you mentioned him when you did that, but he is also not kind on the subject. You said that Stanley Kubrick does not even understand horror. <laughs> <laughs> said that basically he went for that, but going back to my cynical answer, that he, he did it purely for commercial reasons and not because he had any particular love for the book or understanding of it. And Cronenberg got a lot of stick for saying that. I am team Cronenberg on this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I mean, yeah, Kubrick made it after he made Barry Lyndon, which didn't exactly set the box office alight. I mean, I, I watched the Stephen King TV movie version. And it's a, the, fu- the funny story about that is that apparently to get the the rights to do that, he had to agree to publicly shut up about the Kubrick version. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so um, but I watched that and thought, actually, you know what? The Kubrick version isn't that bad. <laughs> uh, um, I think, I think the Kubrick version is a good portrayal of what it's like to be inside the head of a crazy man, but it throws away everything else in the book. And that's what I loved. And again, it comes back to character. Jack Torrance is actually a likable character who ends up being completely destroyed. And that's that's the horror of the movie for me. And that's just not in Kubrick's film at all. No, he's he's an absolutely foul character from the get-go in mm. Kubrick's film. Little things kept annoying me, like in the end when he's running around the maze, there's no steam on his breath. It's like, Kubrick, you are supposed to be the master of these sort of things. You do hundreds of bloody takes. Did you miss that? <laughs> well, you know, if if you if maybe if you believe the conspiracy theorists, there's there's a, there's a reason. <laughs> we just haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> it all makes sense if you can just figure out it's the moon landings were faked and yeah, and, yeah. and it's to do with the Nazis and yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and the anti-vaxxers, of course, they're 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 all in the overlook. I'm sure of it. If you watch the film back to back with the dark side of the moon playing backwards, I'm sure it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Graham, why do you think the, the king attracted? Oh, back to reality. Yeah, the dead zone. I agree with Val. You know, it's the characters. But also, um, Stephen King's plotting is extremely good. Well, the stories are excellent. And, the, and then there's the plotting. So the director already has a, a pot of gold to work with here. And it's just how they interpret that and move that onto the screen. And I think... A lot of directors go, oh, right, all that bit's done, story's done, characters are all solid, you know, the plotting's good. Now I can concentrate on my art form, which is translating that onto the onto the screen. And I think a lot of directors see this as a, a really interesting puzzle for them to solve as well. And they make a lot of money as well. Let's not, <laughs> let's, let's not ignore it. I mean, The Dead Zone had a budget of $7 million, and at the time it made... Uh, 20 million. So it's it's not a bad return on your money. So I think, yeah, it, in the 80s, everybody was reading King. I was working in London at the time, traveling in on the train, and everybody was reading Stephen King. Very easy to pick these 
popular things up and put them up on the screen. And you can really see the, the directors who got it and the directors who didn't. Kubrick obviously didn't, but I really think Cronenberg's film is extremely good. Basically what is a, a, a very short film, he nails it. And, yeah, and for let's sure. go to that book of the Dead Zone. And, and Val, have you read the book? I have, not recently. I, I went through one of those phases of binge and king, starting with Christine and then kind of working. So that, that was, I guess, 82, 83 when that was published in paperback and just started working my way backwards and forwards from there. So I think the Dead Zone might have been the third or fourth book I read of King's. And like a lot of people, I'm sure, you know, you, you pick up the, the book and I'm – Back then, it had a really scary-looking cover. I will bet you it still does because it's got Stephen King's name on it, and you know, and came away completely surprised by it because it's spoiler alert: it's not a horror novel. Um, really, uh, there are some horrific aspects to it, but it's more of a, a thriller with supernatural elements thrown in. That's how I felt about it at the time, and I think that again worried Cronenberg when he made this film that he worried at Stephen King's name and all the scary imagery that goes around it and the taglines, you know, welcome to another journey with the master of horror, all that kind of stuff would put off an audience who would potentially love this film. Interesting. It's the only book I've ever read where I skipped four pages. I couldn't read them. So I started to feel sick. And, and that was the, um, <clears throat> that was the bit where they described his operation on his legs. Oh, <laughs> he get, when he, oh no. I work in a hospital part time, and I don't go anywhere near patients as much as I can avoid it. And sick people, uh, sick people now, leave them alone. I'm not but, sure you deserve people clapping for you. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I rescind my clap. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> in fact, the people that work with me said that as well. Um, but but yeah, it's, it, I just really struggled with the the detail he put in on that operation. Other than that, I loved the book. It was hmm. it was really good. What about you, Graham? Have you read it? I'm just thinking. Did you did you read Misery? Where she breaks eggs with a hammer? I've never read Misery. I've seen the film. Oh, I've never read the book. <laughs> okay. um, no, I haven't read the book. And it's again, it, I've just downloaded the audiobook to listen to because when I was watching this film, I thought I really should read this book. This is cracking. I want to read this book. I want to get you know all of the the Stephen King. Stuff, as it were, out of it. I want to understand a bit more about some of the other characters, the father and the son who doesn't fall through the ice and those sorts of things. I want to understand what's going on there uh, a bit more. So, yeah, I haven't read it, but I, I, I intend to. You want to kill your own son? I'm scared, Dad. For Christ's sake, John. Don't be scared. Just go eat your cookies. Don't you know who I am? Of course I know who you are. You think I'd have you come into my son's life without checking you out? But I hired you for your abilities as a teacher, not as a fortune teller. Now, don't give me any arguments. The ice is going to break! Yeah, so one of the incidents you mentioned there does not occur in the book uh, in quite the same way. But, I mean, there were a few few other differences as well, and I guess Cronenberg must have trimmed them because obviously anyone adapting a Stephen King doorstop has to do a bit of judicious trimming. One of the things that I remember from the book quite vividly, um, because of, you get that wonderful Stephen King description, is that the sense that every vision is bringing Johnny Smith a little bit closer to death. Everyone hurts him. 
Yeah. And I didn't yeah. think that came across quite as much in the movie, which um, you know, it's kind of a shame, but I can see why they, they felt the need to dump it. So a little bit of history. David Cronenberg wasn't the first choice for this movie. Now, it was originally developed for Stanley Donan to direct, who went off to make Saturn 3 instead. Hey, we're all the wiser. <laughs> uh, when he left, Michael Cimino and John Badham were considered and offered it. I'd love to see anybody offering Cimino anything at this time after Heaven's Gate. But it would have been a very different movie with them. And David Cronenberg had done Videodrome. And I was fascinated researching this as to why the hell he'd, everything he'd ever done up to this point, he'd written and directed. He didn't write this. And it's from uh, source material. And then I found out after Videodrome, which he found it's a he very heavy movie, he wanted some light relief. Most people go make a comedy. David Cronenberg <laughs> makes a film about the end of the world. I mean, how cool is that? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so what did you think Val of David Cronenberg's direction um, I, I thought he was actually a great choice and it surprised me looking at David Cronenberg's early movies I love them I'm a big Cronenberg fan but I do find all of his movies up to this point quite cold these characters seem to be there mainly to push along the terribly scientific exposition which is often nonsense but it doesn't matter you know, about psychoplasmics and, and what have you. But, you know, and here he's got these very warm, very empathetic characters, and he seems to want to spend time with them, which is amazing. And I, I was um, reading about it, and uh, funnily enough, this, this is exactly what he said about his choice to make the film. Was, um, he said he wanted to fuse his own sensibility with that of Stephen King to make a film that would be different from either of them, but would combine their strengths to make a strong film. So it's it's almost like they went through a telepod, chaps, and came out as a <laughs> Kingenberg, uh, yeah, <laughs> and and frightened the crap out of Gina Davis, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I wonder if that was an idea for something else. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, I was actually quite surprised by the choice of him as a director. By I think it was Deborah Hill who recommended him. Although I think Raffaella De Laurentiis wanted him as well, who was attached to the project before Deborah Hill came on board. Uh, so it, it seems an extraordinary choice to me, but it really works. And the performances in this film are, are really very strong. They hold the movie together. Do you think there are elements of this film that remind me a little bit of Scanners, but more fleshed out with characters? I mean, it's got that same, like Cronenberg stands back. The acting is great and, and there's a lot of emotion, but it's still that detached view of something like Scanners, but with stronger characters. Do you think that's fair? I can, no, I can see it. Yeah, definitely. One of the interesting things that I, I read about um, Cronenberg's direction to get that, you know, that weird little jolt that uh, Walken does yes. when he has yeah. one of his visions, that is David Cronenberg firing a gun. <laughs> 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 Poor bloody Christopher Walken. He must have needed his, his uh, rompers changed several times a day, I would have thought. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's why you become more and more bizarre with his acting parts after this. Yeah. <laughs> Bugger off, is that bloody David Cronenberg again? Yeah. <laughs> Where's my brand called? Yeah. <laughs> what, um, what did you think of the direction uh, on this, Graham? Well, I loved it. I thought it was very, very good. I mean, I'd just come off watching Cujo, so this was a, a hell of a step up. And yeah, okay, Cronenberg's cold and detached, but he filmed the whole thing in snow, so there he got his cold bit in again, <laughs> literally this time. 
it's very un-Cronenberg-ish, you know? It's it's very, very fast-paced. That word you just made up. Yeah, copyright at the flicks, 2021. I thought it was very un-Cronenberg. It was just all so good. I was watching this going, that's really clever. That's really good. Oh, I like that that shot. He's thought about that camera angle. Oh, yeah, look at that. And I was it was constantly, as it was going along, enjoying the story, getting into the character. Walken is just brilliant. Oh, hang on. When is he not brilliant? Okay, he mm. was just brilliant. And it was very light Cronenberg direction, I think. It just worked perfectly. And no pods in it. <laughs> well, one of the interesting things about his direction style is that apparently he he doesn't really think about these things, and that's what's amazing that it, it really looks polished and very slick. But he said he just likes to rock up on set, have a bit of a chat with the actors, work out what they want to do, basically go with the actors' instincts, and then plan the scene around them. So it must be a right pin in the bomb for you know his camera crew and his his DP and all those guys you know trying to figure out what, what's he going to do. What, what, what does Christopher Walken want to do today? Because, you know, we have no bloody idea. And there's no storyboards. He doesn't like storyboards. He, he, he just wants to do it off the cuff, which is amazing to me when you see how polished this film is. Yeah, I, I looked at some of the documentaries and the making of it. I'm even more gas now listening to that. <laughs> when he came on board, there was this conflict of who was going to play the main part of John Smith. Hmm. Now, apparently Stephen King wanted Bill Murray. David Cronenberg wanted Nicholas Campbell, who ended up in the film, but played Frank Dobbs. I mean, I can't even begin to imagine Bill Murray in the Walken part. And I accept this is before Ghostbusters, but I still can't see it. I, I, I kind of get not wanting Christopher Walken. It's almost like the casting of Jack Nicholson in The Shining, in that there is this... When Walken comes into the into the set, you know, comes and walks into the room in a film, you can see there's something strange and something different about him right away. He's got that piercing glare and that delivery. And I guess what Cronenberg wanted was, you know, like a, I don't know, a John Voight or someone who was very sort of ordinary. I know John Voight isn't ordinary now, God's <laughs> sake, but he was then. Trust me on this. Um, you know, but someone who is more of a everyman. As for Bill Murray, I think what he could have brought to the role was kind of a an innocence and a, a, and a youngness to the role because he was a very young actor at the time, and uh, and that would have emphasised kind of the, the tragedy of his journey and, and emphasised the, the, what what the, the trauma of what had happened to him. With Walken, you kind of sense there's something strange about him to start with, even before the accident, uh, which is an amazing scene. That that scene with the the truck coming over the hill is absolutely mm. actually one one of the terrifying scenes in that film. Once you're actually past the accident and the psychic powers start to come out, then you see that actually Christopher Walken is perfect for this. And, and there is that sense of pain through, throughout this whole movie. He's had something taken away from him. He's, he's almost like a ghost. Had his life taken, he's had his uh, girlfriend taken, he's had his future taken. And that's, that's apparent even before you get to the climax of the movie. You mentioned the accident there. I want to go mm. back to your comment about no storyboarding, because to think that that whole mm. sequence is done without storyboarding, particularly the way that trailer comes over the horizon, the sparks coming off it as it's going, do that without storyboarding. That is incredible. I'm, I couldn't say for sure that every scene was not storyboarded. I know that they did have someone that they'd hired who Cronenberg apparently said the poor guy was wasting his time, most of it, <laughs> because what he did was not what they shot, but possibly for those big set pieces. And I'm guessing for some of the visions as well, like that incredible scene where 
Johnny Smith just sort of rolls over in bed and he's in another room, but he's still in his hospital room at the same time. I mean, they, they must have put quite a lot of forward planning into that. But I'm assuming that those are the unusual scenes, the more complex scenes, and obviously the World War Two scene. So, Graham, I'm going to change tack slightly with you. David Cronenberg is known as an actor's director. I mean, you look at a film called The Brood, where he's got people like yeah. Samantha Rega and Oliver Reed, you know, as sort of emotive as um, a forest of bloody um, redwoods. Uh, but he gets great performances out of them, and he gets great performances in this film. Who stood out for you in the acting front in this movie? Well, obviously Morgan stood out. And I, I, the thing I like about Morgan is that when you first see him, I mean, apart from the crazy haircut, and his hair gets better through the film, by the way, that's just <laughs> a, a point. <laughs> He's just such an everyman. And he really does earn his name, John Smith. And then things start to go slightly wrong. And he slowly becomes more and more of himself and, and shrinks into himself and moves away from his his hometown just so he can be alone. And it's I thought what was wonderful about this was that he's the everyman that saved the planet and nobody knows. That really, really, I thought was so poignant. It's the little people who change things and change the world. It's not the, these showy people. And he was just great for that. So I loved him. I also liked um, the girl, Brooke Adams, okay. was it? Yeah. God, she, oh my goodness. The, she was obviously stunningly beautiful, but also she had this sort of sadness constantly through the, through the, um, the whole film that she was just constantly regretted everything. In her life, all her choices, apart from her son, and then she nearly has that snatched away from her. I thought Cronenberg got really incredible performances out of that. And then Herbert Lom, a man who can overact with the best of them, <laughs> and he managed to have him turn down. Most of the time, he is up at 11, and he had him turn down to about two on this, and he worked so well. I can't really talk about Martin Sheen because I just think he's brilliant and he was phenomenal in this it was it was like looking back to the 1980s and seeing the, the proto genesis of uh, trump just right there and i thought oh all the things he's saying are so trumpian we should have paid a lot more attention to this film than we did yeah we'll touch on for that sure. in a moment what, what about the acting for you val what stood out for you uh, I mean, I, I've got to echo uh, the, the point about Herbert Lom. Uh, actually, that was, he, it's not a huge role, uh, but it's a really important one. And, you know, Herbert Lom, as you say, Graham, he, he's, he's Chief Inspector Driffers of the Cirque, <laughs> you know, it's like, what? <laughs> you can't act, can you? Um, he's amazing. Um, that The scene where he talks about, you know, calling his mother, it's, it's an, another heartbreaking moment in a film that, you know, has this, thick vein of tragedy that runs throughout. Yeah, he, he was kind of, I, I don't want to put Walken down or, or Martin Sheen, they are both amazing, but Herbert Lom was the revelation for me. Sheen as well, you kind of look at that and then you look at his role in Apocalypse Now and you go, okay, I, I, I see it. You know, I can see this is what energy he's drawing on to be Greg Stilson. Um, but then you cast forward to the West Wing <laughs> you yeah. go, how is he doing this? How is he being? How, you know, does he actually contain all these multitudes? Does he have all these personalities inside him? What, what's he drawing on to put that out there? Because he's just so convincing as a crazy politician and a desperate man. 
I'd, I'd just like to throw in one other there, Anthony Zerba. I, I, again, another actor who can go right over the top when he wants to. But again, a very restrained and quite an almost Machiavellian performance as well. I thought he was really good. And yeah. his destruction at the end, in, in you know, his, his emotional destruction, I thought was beautifully played with him just sitting True. there in the chair. Yeah, he was the father, wasn't he? Just drinking yeah. the whiskey, yeah. 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 I yeah. still want to know what was driving that man, you know? And as you said, well, that's probably, I'm beginning to suspect that's not in the book. That was a really interesting character, and Cronenberg and, uh, just left it, you know, just dropped it there, and you th- it leaves you thinking. And I thought that his performance was great because he just turns up, problem was my son. You never find out what the problem is, and you never find out anything about the father and it's just one of those enigmatic little moments in the film you think well what happened there that was interesting but then yeah. you're off again because the pacing is so fast and it rattles along towards the end for yeah, sure I, like, I liked I, I don't think there's a bad performance in the whole thing even Martin Sheen's henchman is great yeah. Oh, yeah, he's wonderful. He just stands in a in a in a, a black leather trench coat and looks menacing but he does it so well I mm. wouldn't cross him and we're overlooking poor old Tom Skerritt. Yeah. <laughs> it was, you know, but he, he's, he, he gives a great Tom Skerritt performance. Um, I, I guess there's not much you can do as a, as a cop other than be stoic. Yeah. It's, it's another great performance from him, uh, another brilliant performance in a genre movie. Yeah. And the bizarre thing with that, of course, that character of Bannerman turns up in Cujo. Spoiler alert uh, <laughs> is um, that he gets eaten in Cujo. Uh, but, at uh, you know, and of course, Cujo as a movie came out before this. So that's. Uh, a really bizarre and, and strange thing. Again, great performances. And I, I, I just want to go back to what you're saying about Anthony Zerba's character and, you know, to understand that character. It's because of people like him, people like Trump have risen up because he says on the one hand, vote against him, watch this guy, but you supported him. You know, you've got to play both ends in, in the big political game. And I think there's a lot, well, I do know actually from my family over in the States, there are a lot of, big players that voted for Trump just to keep on the right side. I need your support. I need your expertise. I need your input. And most importantly, I need your money. <laughs> God bless, Roger. I'll be seeing you. Thanks for dropping by, Greg. I'll see you. Bye-bye. Good to see you, Sonny. My God, what a glorious day. Amen. Doesn't he say something along the lines of, you know, he's, he's, he's a fool, he's an idiot, we don't have to worry about him because he's He's just a joke. Something along yeah. those lines. I can't remember. Really, yeah. yeah. One one of the many characters that King pulled on to to create this monster, Greg Stilson. Um, he he used Hitler, of course. But uh, there was a guy called Frank Rizzo who was the mayor of Philadelphia. Apparently, he was a big inspiration for Stilson as well. Who King referred to as an ominous buffoon, which <laughs> describes our little orange friend quite well as well. I believe. Um, King said, you know, you laugh at this guy, but at the same time, you just cross your fingers and hope he doesn't get too close. And obviously, we didn't hope hard enough in 2016. But, you know, Frank Rizzo, one of his slogans was vote white. And and he actively encouraged uh, violence by the police against protesters, especially African-Americans, you know, which, again, clearly Trump was also watching these guys and making notes in his little book. In crayon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but one of Trump's mentors was... Um... Ray Cohen. So uh, it's what you oh, get. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So pretty scary stuff. 
Jeffrey Boehm's screenplay kept the focus on all the main incidents of the novel. Um, was this the best approach, Val? Do you, do you think this was a? I mean, it's really a presse of of the of the book, as far as I understand. Do you think keeping it all was a good approach? I, I, it's interesting your point about uh, Anthony Zerber and that character. That that's definitely you feel a compression there, and it's interesting the the book. I think I think a few screenwriters had a crack at it. And it's a, it's a tough nut to crack. You'll, you'll see when you read it, it's actually three stories running in parallel, really. Uh, it's the, the Johnny Smith story, Greg Stilson story, and the Castle Rock Killer. So it was, I believe it was quite a tough thing to do. Well, Stephen King wrote a screenplay himself where he, I guess, wanted to be Stephen King for his audience. So he upped the horror and I think focused too much on the Castle Rock Killer, from what I understand. So Cronenberg threw that one out, but he liked Boehm's screenplay. And apparently he, Deborah Hill and Boehm, just checked themselves into a hotel for a weekend, nutted it out, just worked through all the problems. And and Deborah Hill said, you know, Stephen King is such a beloved author, it's a really hard thing to get in all the things that his audience want, while at the same time not making some eight-hour epic. So, And I think they did an amazing job of tying everything together they obviously, Sarah uh, and her her husband, were not, as I remember, involved with the Stilson campaign at all. So they kind of meshed it together like that, and they cut the Castle Rock Killer right back. There were some things they pruned a little bit too much, but on the whole, I think they did a terrific job of keeping in all the essentials of the plot to keep you riveted, to keep you moving forward. You know, and maybe at the expense of some of the relationships. Like I said, if if they if they'd included everything, we we would still be watching it now, chaps. <laughs> yeah. What What do you think they pruned back too much? For, for me, I think the the thing that I really missed was that sense that that bond between uh, Johnny and Sarah. We see a little bit of it right at the beginning of the movie, and from there on, it just has to be implied. And what you need to get that across is terrific acting between Brooke Adams and Christopher Walken, a terrific score. And basically all the things that an audience needs to allow them to fill in the blanks with their imagination. And I think they just about get it over the line. But certainly you, the, you, the audience needs to do a little bit of heavy lifting at that point to get to do that for them. Oh, well, that makes sense now. It's still 103 minutes. You know, I would personally, I'd watch the eight hour version myself, but <laughs> yeah, that's just me. But 103 minutes. Holy cow. Yeah. Yeah. There are reflective moments in it there are pauses and still points but it still seems incredibly fast-paced so For yeah sure. it's Cronenberg yeah, just delivered this perfectly we need to give a lot of credit to Deborah Hill she's 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 an incredibly talented woman or she was so sadly uh, but you know she did a lot of work that probably wasn't credited on Halloween as well she's she's actually quite a talented writer as well so I think she's probably in the mix there as understanding this book and helping put together a screenplay that really serves the book. Um, I'm going to compare it to Christine, which I, I bloody love the book. Christine is still one of my favorites. Uh, and I love John Carpenter, but the film Christine it just about binned everything I loved about it. <laughs> so, so maybe John Carpenter should have stayed with Deborah Hill. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Pete Gordon was good in Christine. I, I, I mean, I saw the film before I read the book, which hmm. slightly colored my judgment on that, but, but I thought Keith Gordon was good. You know, I mean, I, I have to say, I, I'm not 
don't want to bag the movie. Uh, I think Christine is actually a really good horror movie and a great eighties horror movie, but I was gutted when I saw it because there's a <laughs> big, there's a big part of it that they just take out. And I thought, Oh, it's such a shame. Please someone remake it and put, and put Roland D. LeBay back in Christine. That's what I want to see. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That whole, the way they did that backstory was just for another time. Yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll go off on that one. Yeah. Um, so we're foreshadowing now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're like we're in the Dark Tower. We're jumping into various aspects of King, although not like that horrible film version of the Dark Tower, which we will mention no more. Um, so pop quiz then. And I'm going to start with you, Graham. Can oh, you explain God. what the Dead Zone actually is? Not from the film. I thought, well, this doesn't seem right. So I went back and had a, a look, and I now know that it's a, there's a dead part of his brain from the accident and that's the dead zone that King was referring to. But I do think that they missed or messed that up in the film a little because I never got really what the dead zone was. Val, anything you want to add to that? First of all, full, full marks to, to Graham. Uh, but uh, I, th- I think, isn't there a, a bit in the movie where Herbert Lom kind of, he yes. gives his spin on it uh, yeah. and he says it's something to do with that area between what's fixed by fate and what can be changed by Johnny Smith getting in there and faffing, uh, fiddling yes. around with with fate. Um, so I, I was actually thinking about this, and I've decided that um, a more accurate title for this uh, novel, Mr. King, would be The Undetermined Zone. So, yes, if you wouldn't mind <laughs> replacing the title. it's, it's I agree, it's, it's less commercial, but, you know, accuracy is important. Uh, so, yes. <laughs> One thing that Stephen King wanted to do with the story. And it's certainly what attracted David Cronenberg because he's spoken about this in interviews on the film is that incredibly subversive idea of building sympathy for a lone gunman. In other words, you know, we're on the side of Lee Harvey Oswald. Does, (laughs) does that work for you, Val? Uh, Absolutely. Um, And I guess it works so well that I didn't even bloody well think of it until I'd read later that this is, you know, King is one of those writers who loves to set himself little assignments you can tell he used to be a bloody teacher, you know, um, <laughs> you know, try, try and write a novel set inside a car. Ooh, you know, Oh, I'll try and write one with a woman handcuffed to a bed. You know, I was like, yeah, all right, Steve. All right. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, so for this one, he's like, yeah, try and make Lee Harvey Oswald sympathetic. And you know, he absolutely pulls it off. You were, if, if you are not willing Johnny Smith to pull that bloody trigger and take down that git, then there's something wrong with you. Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, it, and it works in the book as well. Um, as I mentioned in the book, by the time the final sort of uh, confrontation between the two men comes about, Johnny Smith is is almost dead on his feet. He's he's you know practically a walking corpse. So it's you really feel it in the book. Come on, just get there. <laughs> um, I remember really being on the edge of my seat uh, finishing that book. He changed his mind on Lee Harvey Oswald in in one another one of his books. Oh, one- yeah, <laughs> that was. Um- the date, whatever it is, 63. Yeah, 20, is it uh, 23, 20, uh, 23, 11, 63. Hey, or, yeah. yeah. 11, 23, 63, if you want to get the date wrong, like the Americans do. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, he changed his mind there. There he's trying to stop him, and yeah, here we're all cheering for him. Go on, shoot him, shoot him. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I think that um, all of that worked just so well, didn't it? I mean, <laughs> and you're right, he was a teacher, and he does set himself... <laughs> and I think it's not just assignments, it's impossible assignments. So how are you going to yeah. get the audience to root for a guy who's just about to kill the next man who's going to be the president? 
how do you get out of that? And only he can. So yeah, it's just constantly brilliant. One, one of the things I like about Stephen King is you've got the main story and there's always something in the best ones happening off to the side, almost Lovecraftian, that you sort of see it, but it's not quite fully formed. And in this, um, it's much more in the book than the film, but there's this almost other story of like a, a game of chess between, and I'll call it, you know, I'll call it God and the devil, but it could be anything. And you've got, you know, the devil setting up Silson and God saying, right, okay, we're going to do a sort of Jesus Christ thing with John Smith and then set him off to work that. And there's hints that this is a game that's being played and constantly played out. Did you get that feel from the film? And if you did, did it work? Val? I'm going to say here, Jeff, that you are clearly a much more spiritual and deep person than I am. I am am a very, very shallow, um, uh, small, farty little man. And uh, (laughs) and so I I didn't... No, it's terrible. It's a good thing that you're not here. So, yeah, I I didn't really notice it, but not in the context of the novel or the, the movie. But in the context of Stephen King's wider work, then you kind of go, okay, yeah, I can see that Stilson is just another incarnation of his dark man, Randall Flagg. Kind of pick up on from that sense that this is a, a story you know, that's playing out in early 80s America, but it's still part of a larger game that's part of this whole universe that Stephen King's created over the decades. But yeah, I, I have to say, no, I, I didn't. I didn't spot that. So, so well, well done. And, and zero marks to me. No, no, no. Graham, <laughs> did you spot that? But I want to go back on something you said there in a minute, but because mm. something was very interesting there. That's the re- resident atheist on the podcast. You <laughs> No, I think it's just balance. I, I, I like this in, in King's books. There's always this, the, the universe trying to put itself back into balance. So you have evil forces in the universe are winning and then the forces of good or or right or balance try and pull it back to the center so yeah i got a a feeling that things were going awry and then they were sorted out but as i said before by the man who nobody knows so these things happen the universe adjusts itself and nobody realizes what's happening Again, I, I find that interesting. I definitely want to go back to Val's point in a minute, so I'm just parking that for the moment. But the whole thing of you know John Smith, when Bannerman asks him to help find the Castle Rock killer, he says, I'll tell you what God has done for me and denies God. And then when at the very end, when he's shot, the first bullet goes through his hand, creating a stigmata. So mm-hmm. I, I think there's, there's all these references to John Smith being a Christ-like figure. And it's just me, so we'll just move on. No, and no, I'll go I, back I, to I my. Pick up I think that's a really interesting point. Um, you know, I think you're both making sense. I'm like, now listening to you guys. I want to go back and watch the movie again. Um, that's that's you know I, that, that's a really interesting thing. Um, I was listening to uh, an interview that Stephen King gave, and he was someone asked him, you know, why do you have these uh, religious characters in your in your novels who are so horrific? You know, they're talking about Carrie's mother. Uh, and uh, Mrs. Carmody from The Mist. And obviously, uh, Johnny Smith's mother in the book is a much bigger figure as well, and she's her religion kind of comes between them. Um, and he'd said, well, actually, I, I am a deeply religious man, you know, not necessarily Christian, but, you know, spiritual. And he'd been brought up in a, in a quite a fundamentalist background. So I'm, I'm sure that those ideas that you've mentioned about stigmata and about you know, this sort of Christ parallel, I'm sure it's, even if King doesn't intend for it, I'm sure it must just come through 
it's just suffused in who he is. I think that's fair. I, I, I think that's right. But I want to go back to you. You were saying about Randall Flagg. And I don't think Randall Flagg is Stilson. I think Randall Flagg is Sonny. Oh. Because the way he manipulates Stilson. Now, in the book, it's a, it, Sonny is a very different character. You know, you've got a backstory for him, but there's no backstory. This guy has appeared. Uh, he is the driving force for Stilson to get him to where he's got to be and, you know, and the potential destruction of the world. But he's also, when things go wrong at the end, Sonny realizes it's all over and just think, okay, that's it. I'm out of here. I can't do any more. And he goes, do it. Put your hand on the scanning screen and you'll go down in history with me. As what? The world's greatest mass murderers? You cowardly bastard! You're not the voice of the people! I am the voice of the people! The people speak through me, not you! It came to me while I slept, Sonny. My destiny. In the middle of the night, it came to me. I must get up now, right now, and fulfill my destiny! Now you put your goddamn hand on that scanning screen, or I'll hack it off and put it on for you! Do it! I would see Sonny as Randall Flagg rather than Stilson. That's interesting. Yeah, and it, oh, that that is interesting. So Randall Fly, so he, even he drops Stilson. I mean, he, you know, it, which just proves that Rudy Giuliani is worse than Randall Flagg. Um, thanks, Jeff. That's an no, interesting. Sir. I'm going to have to think on that one. So I'm going to take that away. Think on that. That's really interesting. I like Randall Flagg as a character. Yeah, he's just yeah. There's no limits to how bad and evil he can be. It'd have been great if he'd set up a press conference at the end outside a landscaping <laughs> company <laughs> with his hair dye running. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, for that. And uh, yeah, making that connection until you said about Randall Flagg, and then I can see yeah. more and more of it in the character of Sonny, particularly in the film. So, yeah. my obsession uh, on most things uh, film is music. And there was no Howard Shaw in this film. And I, I sort of researched, did they have a falling out? But no, the studio wanted a name. So they engaged Michael Kamen, who'd done even less film work at this stage than Howard Shaw had done. But he had done an album for this company. And I thought he'd produced a score that sounded very similar to what Howard Shaw had done, but there was more melody at its centre. And interestingly, I thought then Shaw copied some of this when he did The Fly a few years later. Um, mm. Any thoughts on the music, Val? I just I'd love the music for this movie. Particularly love the opening credits where you get that wonderful. It's really distinctive, and I guess the, the, the Stranger Things guys kind of steal it, where you get the the you know the the title pulling back, so you gradually see it being revealed uh, as the music swells, and it's it's very subtle. It, it is quite lyrical. It does have that same. It manages to carry through that same tinge of sadness that just colours the whole movie and it kind of tells you, Johnny Smith, things aren't going to work out too well for you. Kind of just, you know, puts that idea in your head. I'm going to say this to you because I'm feeling very, very close to the pair of you now. I'll admit this. But, uh, <laughs> I, I may I may have brushed away a manly tear at the end. <laughs> you know, just coming back to me now. Um, I'm sorry, I'm just my thoughts. But it, it, it's, it's the music. It's the music that does it to me. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it is, yeah, it is good.
Well, I've got to admit, Val, that I never listened to uh, film music up until about 10 years ago when <laughs> Jeff threatened me with a baseball bat. And um, <laughs> the only way, Val. It, it was the only way. <laughs> And now I can't unhear any bloody thing. I mean, it's, um, it's it's a double-edged sword, I tell you. If there's mm. crap music in a film, I'm going, who the hell wrote this? Uh, where is that baseball bat, Jeff? But, um, <laughs> but this was just, yeah, again, it's that this is cold, this is detached, this is quite gripping, and yet there's this beautiful melody going over the top, and you, it's just that lovely juxtaposition that a lot of, people who score music are now doing where, you know, the music evokes something, but it's also a bit of foreshadowing as well. And you think, oh, this is just clever. So there's another level of not only is the cinematography good and and the direction excellent and the acting spot on, Hmm. but also Michael Kamen's bringing his A-game to this as well. And you just think, yeah, this is as a package just works. And there's that amazing shriek of the violins when he has his... uh, Visions as well, which is yes. you know one of the things that actually is quite scary in the movie. Uh, yeah, it's really well done. Now I want to go into an area, Val, where I think you're going to be very comfortable because you talk quite a lot on your podcast about cinema and attitudes in Britain to cinema in the 70s and 80s. And I want to talk about the video release of The Dead Zone. I saw it in the cinema, uncut, when it first came out. So I didn't think there was anything to cut on there. How was I to know with the video nasties <laughs> bill going through? And there are two cuts, all to do with the Castle Rock Killer. So when I saw it on video, I was like most disappointed that they felt the need to, to cut those out. Were you aware of that when you first saw it, or was that something you, you found out later on? I, I didn't know at the time. And it's, I suppose that's a mark of how strong the story is, that although it was taken out, I didn't really notice. And it's and the Cronenberg's direction is so well done, but you see what happens in your mind's eye, even if that uh, that censor chap pulled it out. But James Furman. Was it Furman at the time? Okay, yeah, I was, I was thinking it's after Trevelyan, but yeah, couldn't remember when. You tell the young folk today, and they don't know um, <laughs> just how bad things were um, at the time, you know, but because obviously home video was new and it was getting blamed for everything, every type of crime. Oh, they must have watched a video and nasty. Oh, so yeah, it doesn't surprise me that the movie was cut. I am surprised because it didn't harm the film. You you can't really see it. I rewatched it for this podcast and I still couldn't see it. So I don't think I've ever seen the on-cut version. Um, I'll have to see if I can seek it out somewhere. In the grand scheme of thing, they were minor minor cats, but it, it's just really frustrating that they that mm. they did it. But, um, there was a TV series following on from this, starring Anthony Michael Hall. Uh, did you see it? And um, what were your thoughts on it, Val? I didn't see it. Uh, I have to admit, um, I do remember it coming out, um, and I think there were kind of there was a lot of revivals at the time. They were they revived the Night Stalker as well, with, and I I found that a lot of these uh, shows. There were diluted versions of the original, and so I wasn't really that interested in watching the show. And I, like as I mentioned earlier, I like the idea that Johnny's almost like a ghost; he's almost partially dead, and the visions are just bringing him closer and closer to the to his, his final fate. So I thought, if you take that away, if you make it a weekly adventure, and every time he has a, a vision, um, you know, and then he's fine again next week, it kind of robs the story of something. And that's exactly what happened. I got four episodes into it. 
and they just it, it was just becoming a contrivance so that he couldn't work out who the killer or who was behind the crime. It was just become really silly. Have you seen it, Graham? No, and th- and that contrivance and he can't really solve who it is. That's one of the best parts in the Dead Zone film. The first time he helps the the policeman in the scene in the gazebo, and it's so cleverly filmed. So you, your level as watching it of frustration rises because he can't see the killer's face, and you're going, "Go around the other way. Go on, yeah. try move for God's sake." You know, you'll see his face, and you can't see his face and then there's the reveal which is just great but yeah i think no no i'm not interested in this because you know he's dead at the end of this one so what's the point i think there were four series in or three series in before they even mentioned greg stilson so uh, shows how much they stretched it out okay we're coming near the end um late night for you early morning for us um so this is a tester question for you val if david cronenberg was to tackle another Stephen King story, which one would you like him to make? Well, okay, I shall, I shall rouse myself. I'll put down the Horlicks and, uh, you know, uh, stop putting them up pyjamas. Uh, uh, <laughs> We're still in ours. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the obvious choice, uh, if you want to talk about body horror, would be David Cronenberg's Thinner. Um, but, uh, but I'm going to be a little bit controversial here, or maybe not because I, now that we've talked about the shining a little bit, I know where you guys sit with it, but I'm going to say, I would love to see Cronenberg shining because you've still got that same sort of a disease of alcoholism affecting the mind, which is, that's his bread and butter. That's what he loves to, to explore. So I, I'd be fascinated to see what he would do with a story about that sort of addiction. Let's have a third version of the shining is what I'm saying. Two isn't enough. <laughs> yeah, because the, the TV version, which was okay, it was the book, but it was bland. Yeah, I know. I was, I was so disappointed. Um, and I guess it's the thing that, you know, like we were saying earlier, adapting Stephen King is really bloody hard, even for Stephen King. And it's because a lot of it is so internal that his inner voice is amazing. When Stephen King drops into italics, you know you're in for a treat. But I'm sure if you're a, a screenwriter, you know, trying to adapt this and you see the bloody italics come up, you know, you must be sitting there going, what, how the bloody hell am I supposed to put across four pages of internal monologue, which is really important to get that into a screenplay. And that's, that's a major problem for the shining. Yeah. Less so for this, for the dead zone. Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Graham? What would you like to see him do? I'd like to have somebody have a go at, at the dark tower, please. <laughs> <laughs> I want it to be the Lord of the Rings of Stephen King. You know, I want it split into 4,000 films all stitched <laughs> together. I don't care how they do it. That's that's always my go-to answer. Please, somebody do The Dark Tower properly and interestingly and have all the components in there so that when you sit down within five minutes, you realize the gunslinger is the coolest person who ever lived. And I want to follow this man through all his adventures. And here we go. And nobody's managed to get that yet. When you read that first book and you go, oh, I have to find out what happens here. And then the second book is just like, it's like the Empire Strikes Back. There's just like, wow, they've taken the, the handcuffs off. Here we go. So handcuffs we, again, eh? Okay. Handcuffs again. It's, yeah, it's a recurring theme, Jeff. <laughs> well, I was almost won over by Val there saying The Shining. I, I, if I had to go for something else apt to people, I think oh, yeah. people would be good. Mm. I haven't read that. No, I haven't yeah, read that's, that. a, that's a, a family film. I'll laugh a minute, that one. 
Oh, so yeah, it's right it? in the King's wheelhouse, yeah. Was it Brian Singer? It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he will be no longer allowed to mention, I believe, isn't he, Brian Singer? He's, I don't think he'll be working again. Right, of course, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, at uh, people. I mean, I thought McKellen was great in it, but th- there's so much more you can do and so much darker you could make that tale, and Cronenberg will not be afraid to take that there. Uh, while this film sort of sneaked into profit, it wasn't the box office hit this talent should have had, but it was a big critical hit. Uh, its reputations continued to grow over the years. Is this film worthy of all the acclaim? Val? I'm going to say yes. I mean, I think it's clear throughout this that I, I really do enjoy this film a lot. Um, and at the time, this came out, like you're saying, along, alongside Firestarter um, from Mark Lester, Cujo from Louis Teague, Christine from Carpenter. Creepshow came out around this time, Children of the Corn. There was a, there was this glut, and this was by far my favourite of all of that group. Um, I thought it was you know, just a, an amazing movie. Looking back, now that we're 40 years on from all of, you know, we've had many more Stephen King adaptations since then, I think it's maybe diminished a little bit in my eyes. It's, it's no Green Mile, it's no Shawshank or Stand By Me, but it's still right up there. And for, certainly for its time, um, it's a Absolutely terrific film. I cannot overemphasize the little, the minor miracle that the writers did in adapting such a chunky book and managing to weld together those three disparate plot lines. So it's absolutely worthy of the acclaim. One of Walken's best performances. I happily watched this uh, over and over again, despite knowing what happens. All of the above, really. Yes, um, having seen it back in the eighties and then almost forgotten it until I watched it this week. I was really pleasantly surprised about how good it was. We've watched a lot of other King things recently because we're doing these shows about it. And yeah, this is right up in there. It's this top three, actually, I think, because I, I really enjoyed this. As I said before, it just rattles along. It's, you don't have to spend a lot of time with it. You can just sit down, watch it in an evening, and it's brilliant. Well-directed, Cronenberg's top of his game here, I think. And uh, and again, Christopher Walken's in it. And Brooke Adams is somebody that I've rediscovered. I'd forgotten all about her. And I shall go and look some other things out that she's done. I'll sum it up by this. We've done three Stephen King films of this batch. First was Creepshow. My wife sat alongside me and said that was nasty rubbish at the end of it. <laughs> uh, second was Cujo. She refused to even be in the room for that. Third was this, and she sat all the way through it and sort of shrugged the shoulders and said, it was okay, and you can't get higher praise than that. Well, so, yeah, great go. film, great film. Wow. Yeah. I think it's really important from Cronenberg's career as well. I, I, it's almost like you can draw a line through this and say, Cronenberg made certain types of movie before it, and then afterwards I think his films become warmer. It's almost like that teleportation worked, and he did pick up some of King's attributes coming out of this movie. Um, the Fly. It, despite the fact it's disgusting and scientific and icky, um, it's it's got a really warm love story right at the centre. Yes. And I'm I don't know if Cronenberg could have done that if he hadn't come off this movie first. No, and and after that he made an, uh, another one of his great films, which uh, Dead Ringers, yeah. which is such Incredible. a difficult film yeah. to have done, and you know great performances. But again, it's a film that if he didn't have any sympathy for the two twins that film would have just been repulsive. But but I I was really hooked on that film as well. The other thing, he had all the control on Dead Ringers. He was director, writer, and producer. 
in this, he was just directing. And I, I know he's a bit of a control freak, but I think this is just him at his directing, just doing it. And I think he, he actually enjoyed this from what I've read. He actually enjoyed this. Well, the other things like Geodrome and Scanners and The Brood and all the others going back, um, he had to work very hard on. I think this was just a, yeah, put your feet up and enjoy the show. He featured in, you know, making of documentaries from 2006, 2007, sort of retrospective. And he was there for it. You know, he didn't need to be, but it just shows the measure of what, what he thought of the film. So, yeah, that's no, a good one. And um, appreciate all the chat on this one. So that was a fascinating discussion on The Dead Zone. I do think it's one of the best adaptations of his work. And indeed, this is, you know, this time in the 80s, the golden age of Stephen King movies. Mm. And there were mo even more released than 83. And we're going to be talking about those in our next batch of Stephen King. So please join us later in the year when we get through summer. Lockdown will be over. We'll be back linking arms out in the streets again. Um, <laughs> knees up Mother Brown and all that. And Val, thank you very much for joining us. I do hope you can make some more of our Stephen King discussions. This has been fantastic. I would love to come back anytime. Um, I, I'm, I'm open to all invitations. Well, as long as they don't involve handcuffs. I just want to put that out there right now. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but anything else, yeah, happy to chat to you guys anytime. It's been absolutely brilliant. To everybody out there, stay well and read King. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.